Archimedes was worried. Chiron II, king of Syracuse, had summoned him several weeks before, always with that slightly baleful look in his eye. Straight away, Archimedes knew it was going to be difficult. Keep your head down, he told himself. Stay out of trouble. In fact, why not go back to Alexandria and work in peace at the library? It turned out Chiron had been given a golden crown. Wonderful, said Archimedes. Most justly deserved. But there was a problem. Chiron was convinced he'd been swindled, that the golden crown was adulterated with silver. He needed, absolutely needed, to know for sure. Okay, thought Archimedes. If we melt the crown, we can check its volume, which will tell us whether or not it's pure gold. Melt the crown. Chiron almost hit the roof. Melt the crown. Laughable. Disgusting. Impossible. Not going to happen. Go and figure it out, said Chiron. You're clever. So that was what Archimedes had tried. But all the usual tricks didn't work. He couldn't concentrate on his other projects. A paper on geometry. Refinements of a design for a new kind of pulley. He paced the sea-lapped city walls, felt the breeze and brooded on the implied threat in Hiron's words. The implied threat despite all he'd done for Syracuse, and on a matter so pointless. He sighed. This was the problem with tyrants. Archimedes had always been fastidiously clean, and in the chaos of papyrus, parchment and models that was his household, the one moment of order was his daily bath. Time at last to forget about Hiron and his ridiculous requests. That day, as Archimedes stepped into the bath, he noticed something both utterly trivial and yet extraordinary. As he got in, the water level rose. His body displaced the water. The volume of water displaced equaled the volume of his body. He instantly knew two things. First, that he'd solved the riddle of the crown. Second, that the insight was of much greater importance. Here was a universal means of gauging volume. A breakthrough moment. Eureka! he cried, leaping from the bath. Eureka! I found it! The residents of Syracuse were used to the eccentric ways of the sage, but even for them, the sight of this wizened man running naked through the central market and the port, past the temples and battlements, again and again shouting, Eureka, was unusual. But Archimedes didn't care. This was no ordinary day, and no ordinary idea. In hindsight, it seems so simple. But like every good idea, it wasn't. Everyone knows the story. When we think of big, breakthrough ideas, we think of something like this, the original, endlessly rehearsed Eureka moment. A flash of insight, a crystalline idea, a new plane of thought. In one sense, this is right, in that it suggests ideas aren't equal, that some ideas are more difficult, more significant than others. In another sense, it couldn't be further from the actual, messy, grounded, discursive, agglutinative, coincidental, 
resource-hungry process of ideation. It won't come as a surprise to hear that the above story is probably apocryphal. But in fact, the truth of Archimedes and Eureka is far more instructive for the history of ideas. Archimedes lived an extraordinary life, his interests ranging across the span of classical knowledge. His breakthroughs were often abstract. He helped invent the concept of pi and pioneered the mathematics of parabolas, levers, spheres, cones and irregular solids. We can't be sure of the bath and the crown. We can be sure that Archimedes was a world-leading expert in the study of fluids and mathematics. But he was also intensely practical. Not only an heir to Euclid, but an engineer working at the forefront of Hellenistic technology. He built engines of war and mechanical inventions including pulleys, winches, the gear wheel and the hydraulic screw. He combined high-level academic work with a hands-on approach, evident in the unification of astronomical discovery with mechanical genius in the creation of one of the world's first orreries. Each alone would make him a giant of antiquity.